We can see from your handout, the title of the sermon is rather ominous, or sounds that way anyway, The Moment After You Die. And we've been thinking about death this weekend as our dear sister Sister Lisa's father is near death and a lot of us have been in places where we've had a loved one who who has died either peacefully or or suddenly, unexpectedly. Maybe some of you soldiers have had comrades in arms who have died in battle and people that you have spent lots of time with and, and suddenly aren't there anymore. And you you ask yourself, if, what if that were me? What happens after I die? And while we might have... A good idea, we think from Scripture, it's good to remind ourselves from time to time what happens right after we die. And we've been talking about the new heavens and new earth this weekend. I'm going to take a little step back. Uh, before the new heavens and the new earth comes, what do we as believers expect as we come to the end of our lives, whether it be after a long life or after a very short life? And I expect all of us have spent some sleepless hours wondering what it is that we will experience. I myself, when I was a kid especially, after I'd been naughty and been disciplined and wondered if if I'm really a Christian and prayed for the 10,000th time for Jesus to save me, uh, just hopefully this one will stick. But it's natural to wonder, especially in the dark, and as dark thoughts may assail you and think, if I were to die now, what would happen to me? Every religion gives answers to that question. In fact, even non-religion gives an answer. And talk to an atheist. What happens the moment after you die? Nothing. That's it. You're dead forever. But religions have different answers, and certainly the scriptures themselves have much different answer. Now, you have there in your notes the Chapter 31, the first portion of that, in the 1689 London Baptist Confession, which, to be uh, fully upfront, it's mostly copied from the Westminster Confession of 1646. So the Baptists took the uh, Pado-Baptist Confession and altered it a bit. They didn't have maybe such strong copyright laws in those days. <laughs> but if you compare them side by side, they're pretty close. But uh, some 40 years later, the Baptist said, we like what you did, but let's tweak it a little bit. Um, and I don't want to exegete the confession like it's scripture. We want to be very careful. The, the words of the confession, we think, are, are in the main good words, biblical words, but they're not the word of God. But as an outline, as a digest of what the scriptures say, I think they're very helpful. So let me read what this says. This is chapter 31 of the state of man after death and of the resurrection of the dead. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into paradise where they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. So I have to go through the parts of the confession one by one and and look at the scriptural uh, reasoning, the rationale for these ideas that are in this confession. First of all, number one, the dying bodies. You'll notice that in the 
the outline I gave you. The first one is about bodies. All the rest are about souls. But first we have the dying bodies. The bodies of men, after death, return to dust and see corruption. Now, when you read this whole section here, this is the most obvious, isn't it? The most upfront. We can see it. A lot of us experienced it on the trail yesterday, going up that, that big hill, and you're pretty sore uh, on the way up, sore on the way down, sore at night, sore when you wake up the next morning. You're just sore all the time, and and you feel it. Some of you young people, and everybody says, old people are saying, hey kids, enjoy it while you got it. Enjoy it while you got it. I'll be another old guy telling you the same thing. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. And every day in the mirror, you see the corruption more and more. Except my wife. <laughs> but this is, again, this is most obvious to us. We can't see what happens to our souls. But most of us have seen loved ones die and be buried and know that their bodies are even now decaying into the dust from which they came. And this, as Brett said earlier, this is an unnatural thing. It wasn't part of what was there at the beginning. It's a result of sin. God had warned in Genesis 2.17, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. I'm not sure what Adam understood that to mean. How does a man who has never sinned and has never died, never seen death, understand what death means? But that's what God warned him of. And then when Adam sinned, God said, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You return back to the elements from which you were made. So that is the dying bodies. After you die, it returns to dust. And even as Brett read this morning in Psalm 16, it says you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. But as Peter talks about that in the day of Pentecost, David's body did undergo decay. The the man who wrote the words in Psalm 16 underwent decay. But that, that Psalm was not about David himself. It was about his son, Jesus Christ, who didn't undergo decay and was raised in a resurrection body. Well, we go from the dying bodies next to the undying souls. The confession speaks of souls which neither die nor sleep have an immortal subsistence. This is an amazing thing that all of you, every man, woman, boy, girl, all of you, whoever lived, everybody who's ever lived, every human being from Adam and Eve is an immortal being. There is a you, there's a part of you, a true you that is forever. Your soul, or we can call it your spirit. And though your body may die and decay into the dust or be utterly destroyed by fire or lost at sea and the body never seen again, there is the spiritual part of you that can never be touched by death. It will never stop existing. You might remember when Jesus is confronting the Sadducees, They said there is no resurrection, and Jesus contradicts them. He says there is a resurrection, and he quotes Exodus 3. This is Jesus in Matthew 22. He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. If there was no resurrection, Hebrew has past tense verbs like English does. He could have said, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, I was the God of Jacob, but 
even in Jesus' time, God still is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though their bodies were buried in a cave in Canaan, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in their their truest being, their, their spirit, was with God in paradise. They were still alive with God. So these souls are undying. They don't die or sleep. They have an immortal subsistence. But when the bodies die, what happens to the souls? We have next, point three, the returning souls. The returning souls. These souls immediately return to God who gave them. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says this, The dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So your body goes into the dust, your spirit goes to God who gave it. Can we get a chair for Ron? Luke twenty three forty six. Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So Jesus' body didn't disappear from the cross. It stayed on the cross, but his spirit went to be with the Father. And then Acts 7.59, as Stephen is being stoned, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So Jesus, as Stephen died, received the spirit. Stephen's spirit went to go be with Christ. Point four, the perfected souls. The perfected souls. The confession mentions the souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness. Now, so far, there's a problem because when we die, any of us going to die perfect? I'm not. Some people teach that. You can get perfect on this earth and then go to uh, heaven with a sort of perfect spirit. But we are not perfect on this earth. Unless Christ comes first, we will, our souls will leave our bodies and our souls in that exact instance, instant rather, are not holy yet. We still have imperfect souls. But the confession here speaks of the souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness as the body dies, the soul goes to God, and now they are perfected. God cannot have anyone unrighteous dwelling with him in heaven. So he must, in a moment, free us from every spot of sin. Ephesians 5.27 says this, that Christ is going to present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So, this is one contrast, perhaps. Paul, in this passage, Ephesians 5.27, likens to Christ and the bride, the bride being made ready. In this case, it is the groom who perfects the bride. The bride has some uncleanness, some spots, some wrinkles. But the bridegroom himself, the husband, Jesus Christ, here takes the church, his bride, and removes the spots, removes the wrinkles. Anything that would be unholy or blameworthy, Christ removes so that his bride will be holy and blameless forever before him. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 says, 
speaks of the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. These spirits are made perfect. They're complete. They're made perfect in holiness. And there is no more transformation for the souls to go through. Charles Hodge, the great theologian of the 1800s, said this, The Protestant doctrine is that the souls of believers are at death made perfect in holiness. But it is asked, what sanctifying power is there in death? That is, how is it that I have a a soul, a spirit that is unholy, that is corrupted? How does that become ready for heaven? And his point later is that this salvation, this, this last bit of sanctification is not a human process. It's not a natural process. Just as Christ, when he cleansed the leper, he said, you're clean, and the leper was clean. He didn't need a process. He didn't have to go through some sort of washing like Naaman did, go down to the river or whatever. At that moment, he was clean. He was healed in a moment. In the same way, our souls are healed when we go to, to be with heaven in, in heaven. And Hodge continues this way. Is it strange that the scriptures should teach that the souls of believers, when separated from the world and the flesh, are redeemed from the power of the devil and bathed in the full brightness of the glory of the blessed Redeemer, should be in a moment purified from all sin. So our souls leave this, this world leaves the temptations of the flesh and go and leaves the power of the devil and goes in the presence of Christ and we are purified in a moment from all our sins. Now, how does this happen? We don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't talk a lot about the exact process. But we do know it's because of the work of Christ. Hebrews 10.14 says, By one offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are sanctified or who are made holy. So whatever sanctification we have in this life is on the basis of what? Christ. The, the, The work of the Spirit of Christ by the power of Christ under the blood of Christ. And our final sanctification, our full sanctification, will be on the same basis. The moment after we die, the Spirit of Christ, by the blood of Christ, again, will finish the sanctifying work he began when he caused us to be born again. And then we will be, as William Cooper said, saved, what? To sin no more. Saved to sin no more. So we were saved in the past when we believed in Christ. Were we fully saved then? In a sense, we were, but not, not fully. Are we being saved now? We are, yes. We're being sanctified now. We're in a process of being saved. But are we fully saved yet? No. When we go to be with Christ, that's when the sanctification is fully accomplished in us. And at that point, we are saved to sin no more. So at that point, we are perfected souls, at least in terms of holiness. There's another imperfection our souls have, we'll talk about in a few minutes. But our souls, in terms of our holiness, is perfected. Point five here. We have heavenly souls. Heavenly souls. Confession says we are then received into paradise, or the Westminster says the highest heavens. Paradise or the highest heavens. And now we get back to a question we've been sort of talking about all weekend. What is heaven? And sometimes it's it's easy 
if, if we're not extremely careful about what we mean by heaven, there's a, a, it can be a mixing of what is the new heavens and the new earth and what's heaven now versus heaven in the future. There are also different ways in which the word heaven is used. More than 600 times in the NASB, the word heaven or heavens is used and refers to different things. How many heavens are there? Anybody know offhand? How many are there? I see one. I hear three. Anyone want to go for two or four or another number? Yeah, three is correct. Three is correct. Now, there you might say four if you want to include the new heavens, but we'll say for purposes of discussion, there are three heavens. The first heaven is the atmospheric heaven. It's the sky you see. Remember the Bible talks about the birds of the heavens. Birds fly in heaven. Not heaven, where God is, but they fly in the heavens. Psalm 147, verse 8, of many we could say, the Lord covers the heavens with clouds. So it's the atmospheric heavens we have. So that's the first heaven. Second heaven, we might call space, or cosmological heaven. This is the heaven above our atmosphere. As we talk about the stars of heaven in Genesis 1, or in Genesis 26, God promises, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. That's the second heaven, where the stars are. And then the third heaven. The third heaven is the dwelling place of God. And let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when we get Paul mentioning this third heaven. Verse 2, Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, by the way, he's speaking of himself. He's kind of talking about himself in the third person. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. And so we have in verse 2, the third heaven is, is where Paul went, and 4, he sits it's paradise. Paradise is the same thing as the third heaven. We also think of many, many psalms and elsewhere in the scriptures, but Psalm 33, 13 and 14 as an example. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. So in this Hebrew parallel poetry, heaven and his dwelling place are the same thing. We even see Jesus talking about our Father in heaven in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So this is where God is. In fact, it's also where Christ is. Christ came down from heaven. John 3.13 says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Christ was in heaven before he came to the earth, and he went back into heaven. Acts one eleven. the angels say to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand up looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So Jesus comes from heaven, he goes back to heaven, and will come back from heaven in the same way. And then we talked about Stephen earlier, but... It says in Acts 7, uh, being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, 
Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen sees a vision of heaven. He sees uh, the throne of God and he sees Jesus Christ with him up in heaven. Somehow the the atmospheric heavens are parted and he can see into the third heaven. And this third heaven is the one that we most often associate with the word heaven in English. We talk about heaven. It's usually the third heaven. Now, any of you, some of you probably speak Spanish or French maybe or German. What's the word for sky in Spanish? Anybody know? Yeah, yeah. what's the word for heaven in Spanish? Yeah, right, same word. In, in heaven, uh, in, in German, it's himmel. Himmel is sky, himmel is heaven. So in other languages, it can be maybe more difficult to distinguish except by context what we're talking about. If we want to talk about the sky, we talk about the sky, not heaven so much unless we're being maybe a little more poetic. But in the Bible, you see heaven used in these three ways, and it, it's the same Hebrew or Greek word depending on which part of the Bible you're looking at. So be careful when you're reading the Bible that you know which heaven it is. And most of our English translations in modern times will use the term sky if it's going to be the, the atmospheric heavens or space, perhaps, when it's talking about the, the, the starry heavens. I mentioned a few minutes ago the word paradise. Paul uses it here in 2 Corinthians 12. I was caught into paradise, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 4. We also saw that, we see it in, in Jesus' words when we have the, the thief hanging on the cross and he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says in Luke 23, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Yes. And this word paradise is from a word that means park or enclosure. And when the Jews translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, they used this word paradise to translate the idea of, of the garden and the Garden of Eden. And it's only used elsewhere in the New Testament in this portion of Second Corinthians 12 and also in Revelation 2.7, which says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so paradise is, in a sense, a return to the Garden of Eden, isn't it? But this is a garden which is infinitely greater and incorruptible. The, the original garden had forbidden fruit. And if you eat from that fruit, you will surely die. Is there a forbidden fruit in the paradise of heaven? Now, all the joys of heaven belong to all the people of God. There's nothing in heaven where God says, thou shalt not. It's all for us to enjoy forever. So people often talk about the garden in Genesis and then the garden in Revelation and the, the parallels, but that's one of the great uh, differences is that the garden in Revelation is a garden that's full of God's pleasures, but they are for all of us and we cannot sin by taking any of them for ourselves. So we've looked at the heavenly souls who have been received into paradise. So the, the body dies and the soul uh which is incorruptible, which never dies, goes to be with God, and it is received into paradise. But what are those souls enjoying at that point? We come to number six then, the blessed souls. The blessed souls. And the confession says, where these they, that is the souls, are with Christ, and behold the face of God in light and glory. And we 
read earlier what Stephen had experienced in Acts 7, verses 55 and 56. Being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. So heaven had the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So it has God, the Father, it has Christ, the Son, and it has the glory of God emanating from heaven. And Stephen says, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The souls in heaven are blessed with the presence of God the Father and God the Son. Stephen's body would be broken under a pile of stones, and the scriptures say it was then buried. But Stephen's eternal spirit wasn't stoned, was it? It wasn't buried. His eternal spirit went to be with Jesus. It says just a few verses later, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So even as his body was broken, was killed, his spirit went to be with Jesus in that blessed release, really. We also have John's vision of those who came out of the great tribulation, Revelation 7. John says, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Again, as Stephen said, there's a throne with God the Father on it and we have the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And these people were clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So these souls are blessed as they enter heaven with the Father and the Son. We were in Second Corinthians, a little earlier, Second Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians 5. Verses 6 to 8. And Paul here is talking about our earthly bodies and how they will decay and be grown. Verse 6, he says, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So Paul's great joy, when he left his temporal body behind him, was to be with the Lord. Philippians 1.23, I am hard-pressed from both directions. That is, he has people to minister to. Paul was a busy man. Even when he was in prison, he was still busy trying to reach out to the churches and encourage them, help them grow. He had lots of work to do, but what was his desire? I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. I love you, Philippians, but I will leave you in a second to go be with Jesus, if that's his will. That's very much better. And there's no in-between place where the soul sleeps or is purged. We'll talk about that more tonight. Or otherwise waits to be with Christ. And if you go to a doctor's office, what do you go to a doctor's office for? You go. Why, why do you go there? What's the reason for going to doctors? You're, you're, you're getting ahead of me. You go to the doctor's office to see the doctor, right? How many of you have gone to the doctor's office and waited and waited and waited? You see the doctor for two minutes. And then say, okay, you're fine. See you later. That'll be 100 bucks or whatever it is. You go there to see the doctor. You go to 
heaven with Christ, there's no heavenly waiting room where you say, you know, you take a number. Okay, you're number three billion, and you got to wait to see be with Christ. Tom mentioned this yesterday. We don't have a time where we're waiting to be with Christ as though Christ doesn't have the attention or the time to see us all. When Paul died, he went to be with Christ. That was the great blessing of heaven. When we die, we go to be with Christ. Not to wait for Christ, but to be with Christ. And this being in the presence of the triune God is what makes heaven, heaven. We look at the end of Revelation and what a glorious thing it is to see the heavenly city, to see the streets of gold and all the other beautiful things in heaven. But those blessings of heavenly city, the fellowship of believers past, present, and future, the choirs of angels, the freedom from sin would all be nothing if God were not there. Charles Spurgeon said this, Oh, to think of heaven without Christ. It is the same as thinking of hell. Heaven without Christ, it is day without the sun, existing without life, feasting without food, seeing without light. It involves a contradiction in terms. Heaven without Christ, absurd. It is the sea without water, the earth without its fields, the heavens without their stars. There cannot be heaven without Christ. He is the sum total of bliss, the fountain from which heaven flows, the element of which heaven is composed. Christ is heaven and heaven is Christ. If you could gather together all conceivable joys and Christ were absent, there would be no heaven to his beloved ones. Hence it is that heaven is to be where Christ is. And the amazing thing is that as much as we want to go and be with Christ, Christ wants us there too. Turn to John chapter 17. This is one of the most amazing, encouraging, blessed verses I know of. John 17, verse 24. I want to be with Christ, not as much as I ought to perhaps, and not all the time as I ought to. But an even greater thing is that Christ wants to be with me and with all of his people. Jesus here is praying just a short time before he's going to, going to the cross to, to bear the wrath of our sins. And he says here, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now you can imagine if you lived maybe many years ago and there was a great king and you were just a, a lowly peasant living in your hut and you got a messenger from the king and the king says, I desire your presence at my palace at, at a great feast. First, you might be, be kind of suspicious. Is Why is the king writing to me? Why is he announcing this to me? And you go to see that king, and he gives you a, a great finery to wear and gives you the, all, the, all the best joys of his table. And then he says to you, friend, I would not only like to have you here with me today, but forever. Here is a room in my palace. And how would you feel as, as a lowly peasant that the, the great king would see you and desire your presence in his home forever. And how much greater is it, how much more glorious is it that the God of the universe, Christ, the the Lamb of God, the, the Son of God, the one who created this world, desires you who know him to be in his presence forevermore. He goes to prepare a place for you. What What a great joy that is for us. So that's the blessing of heaven. Christ has gone to prepare a place for us that where I am, there you may be 
also. To be in the place where he is, where we can enjoy perfect fellowship forever. Just us and Christ and all those who love Christ and have been redeemed by Christ. And we have, finally, in this list, the waiting souls. The waiting souls. These souls are waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. As I said earlier, after we die, we're still incomplete. We're still not quite perfect. There's something missing. And that's because God has made us embodied souls. We're not like the Greeks thought where the soul is is the thing and you want to be released from your body. The body's holding you back. Now, God has made us to be body and soul forever. And it's, in a sense, unnatural for a soul not to have a body. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 likens it to being unclothed. But there is a promise ahead. Philippians 3.21, Paul says that Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. That is, our humble bodies, and, and mine is humbler than most, our humble bodies will be transformed to be like Christ's body, his glorious resurrection body. How, whatever that is, whatever it looked like under a microscope, that body that Christ has is the body that we will have as well. And it says, by the exertion of the power that he has to even to subject all things to himself. So Christ has the power to create the universe. He had the power to raise himself from the dead. He has the power to exert all the universe under his authority. It says here in Philippians 3.21, that same power he has is the power that will raise us from the dead. It's as certain as that. And this resurrection to come is a work of the triune God. Romans 8.11 says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that is, if you belong to Christ, the spirit is in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that is, the Father, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So you will get life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit is, is raising us. The son is raising us. The father is raising us. This this triune God and, and the power of God is raising us up to be with Christ forever. Now, we could read a large portion of 1 Corinthians 15 as we talk about this resurrection to come. But let's just look at a few verses. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50. We'll just read down to verse 53. Paul says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised and perishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and the mortal, this mortal must put on immortality. And once this happens, we will then be completed souls. We will have perfect, sinless souls united with perfect, undying bodies forever. And this is the beginning of our experience of eternal life in all its fullness. And we have eternal life now through Christ, don't we? But right now we have corrupt bodies and corrupted souls. We're, we're still sinning, but we still have eternal life. When we die, unless Christ comes back 
first and we're raised at that moment. If we have a time between when we die and when Christ comes back and we're raised, we will have perfected souls with no bodies. And uh, speak, uh, as Tom was talking about last night, I don't want to contradict him because he's speaking figuratively. If you were to die right now, you close your eyes in death, do you really open your eyes in heaven and see Christ? You have eyes in heaven? Do souls have eyes? I, I'm not sure how souls can see God, but in a sense, we, we won't have eyes in heaven yet, will we? Because we don't have bodies. So your soul goes to be with God. Your eyes, where are your eyes if you die right now? In your, in your body, on the ground. But we will somehow have consciousness. We, we see God in a figurative sense anyway. Somehow, but with our souls, we see God in his, in, in his presence in heaven. But then we're united with our bodies forever in heaven. Then we will have actual resurrected, uh, internalized, you might say, to see God in, in, in the fullness uh, of what we can experience as resurrected saints. Well, then how do we respond to all this, the, these points of the, the bodies dying and the souls going to be with God? Well, in describing what the Bible says about death and heaven, I've made the assumption in this discussion that you all know Christ, that you have all been redeemed by Christ, but I don't really want to make that assumption right now. There are two kinds of people who are resurrected. Way back in Daniel chapter 12, Daniel knew this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So some will be raised to, to life, as we said just now, Others will be raised with resurrection bodies, but those resurrection bodies are not meant to enjoy God's presence forever, but they are made to suffer God's absence forever. Not to enjoy the pleasures of God, but to experience the punishment of God forever. So that's why the Bible speaks of two resurrections. But there is hope because Jesus says in John 6:40 this is the will of my father that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life and i myself will raise him up on the last day if you see the son and believe in him you have faith in Christ as your savior you repent of your sins and and ask Christ on the basis of his death for you to save you from your sins you will be one of those that Christ himself will raise up on the last day. And so if you don't know Christ, your response to the sermon today is to have faith in him, to believe in Christ, to repent of your sins and, and trust Christ. That is your response today. Because all those things I told you before about going to be with God are not your experience unless you believe in Christ himself. But what about those who know Christ already? We also have some responses. The first response is faith in your outline there. But some others for Christians, those who know Christ. First of all, anticipation. And I think that Tom talked about this, probably Brett did too. Anticipation of heaven. Now, if you were to ask an average person, what is heaven like? You probably have a false view related to you, a caricature. It's just boring. It's sitting on a cloud, playing on a harp, and twiddling your thumbs forever. Some of you may have seen an old cartoon. There's kind of a sad-looking guy with a halo and an angel's wing sitting on a cloud. And he's thinking, I wish I bought a magazine. <laughs> you ever been in a place like that where you're just bored out of your mind? Some of your kids really know that well. 
That's not what heaven is like. Heaven's not at all like that. And Satan wants to have people to have this distorted view of heaven. That way non-Christians won't have fear of hell or desire for heaven. Who wants to go there? I can have a party with my friends in hell, right? My friends are all going to hell. I might as well go there too and we can have a big party. Well, all the, 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 the lame people are up in heaven just sitting around playing their harps, their, their ridiculous music while we have a, a rock party down in, in hell. But if Christians themselves get this view of what heaven is like, that this sort of boredom, eternal boredom, they won't have the deepest hope and will become too attached to this world. It's, there's lots of things that people want to do before they die. There's a term for it. What, what's the term for what you do before you die? Bucket list, right? Nothing wrong with bucket list per se, but it can also be very self-indulgent. I must do this before I die. Tell you what, if you know Christ and you never make it to Hawaii or even that, that waterfall down there that, that took too long to get to yesterday, it'll be okay because you'll see Christ. And so bucket lists are fine, but just hold on to it loosely. Right? Because you have Christ, you have all things in Him. If you just, if you're, all you're concerned about is, I just, I have to get married before I die, I have to have kids, I have to do this, I have to experience these things. If I could just get that job or, or this, this new car, new house, whatever it is, in light of eternity, that all pales in importance, doesn't it? In contrast to this sort of bored view of heaven, what, what does Paul say? We saw this earlier. Paul's desire, Philippians 1.23, was to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. He also says, a little later, Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is eagerly waiting for his Savior. He's working hard, but he's eagerly waiting. And what are the last words of Scripture before the final benediction? What does John say? Come, Lord Jesus. That This, this old man, John, he wanted Jesus to come. He, he walked with Jesus on the earth for several years, and he'd, he'd been away all those years. He wants Jesus to come. So that the Bible ends with anticipation of the coming of Christ. And how can we say that heaven would be boring if Paul and John, who knew Jesus, desire to be with Jesus? How much more should we want him who haven't seen him yet. So, the response for Christians, first of all, is anticipation. Second, comfort. Comfort. John 14, 1-3. We don't have time to turn to all these, but let me just read them. You know it. John 14, 1-3. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In this time, the disciples were were mourning, wondering, what is this Jesus keeps talking about? Dying, going to Jerusalem to die? They were troubled. Their hearts were troubled. But Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled, because while I may be dying in a few hours, I go to prepare a place for you. That was a comfort that Jesus offered to these disciples when they were troubled, when they were uncertain about the future. In time of confusion, sorrow, this doctrine of heaven was to provide comforts to them. Next, the doctrine of heaven 
provides us hope. Provides us hope. Hebrews 11.10 says that Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham never had his own city, but he was looking for a better city that God was going to build. It says later in verse 16, but as it is, they, that is all these faithful people, desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We saw that last night, the heavenly city, this new Jerusalem. That is a great source of hope for us. We look forward to that hope of that eternal city. Next, we have sort of a dual one here, encouragement and endurance. Encouragement and endurance. Hebrews 12, 1-3. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, speaking of those faithful ones from chapter 11, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Then this verse. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So if you are enduring sinners being hostile towards you, consider Christ. Did Christ endure hostility by sinners? He did. So we consider him, we look at him, so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. So if we're running this race and we're about to give up, yesterday I was going up the hill, we made a wrong turn, and I kind of joked. I wasn't totally joking, actually. I said, you know, I'm just going to go back. We already came the wrong way. I'm just going to go back. I kept going, though. But endurance flags pretty quickly for me when I'm on a, on a hike. And I, any, any excuse I can get to turn around and go back, I'll take it. But Christians can't do that, can we? We have to run with endurance. We, we can't just... Sit down. I heard John MacArthur tell a story recently. Um, he was he was a, a track runner in, in college, and he was in this really really good relay team, four, uh, four by four hundred relay. You know, you, one guy runs fast, the other guy runs fast, and, and and you get four guys going. Well, the the third guy on his leg, he got tired, sat down on the track. He was done. He didn't want to finish his race, and they lost. Obviously, <laughs> they were disqualified because they didn't finish the race. The guy got tired. Didn't, couldn't even walk to the end of it. He just sat down and gave up. Again, Christians can't do that. We have to run with endurance. And we can run with endurance because Christ ran with endurance. Because we see the heavenly goal. We keep it ahead of us. We don't look at the sin that entangles us. We don't look at what is trying to corrupt us or trying to trip us up. We look ahead to Christ where he is. And where is Christ? He's in heaven. We look to where heaven is. And that we keep our eyes on Christ. He, he's sort of the, the tape at the end of the, the sprint that we're running towards. And as we see Christ, we endure and we have encouragement. People will try to distract us from our, our road, like we see in Pilgrim's Progress, try to get us off the road, but we focus on Christ and keep going by his grace. So we have encouragement and endurance. Next, we have diligence. We have diligence. Philippians one twenty two. Paul says, If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. We might think, well, we're going to heaven anyway. Might as well just wait. Sit on a roof, wait for Jesus to come back. I'm, I'm looking for Christ sitting on my roof. Come from the sky, I'll see him. 
But God has given us things to do on this earth to be diligent about. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. This is that great chapter about the resurrection. Paul doesn't just say, so wait for Christ. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It's the resurrection, the power of Christ, that makes our earthly work of value, of eternal value. And so, because we have this resurrection coming, we endure with fruitful labor. Steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We don't sit down, we don't give up, we don't stop working just because we're waiting for Christ to come. And then our last reaction, our last response is holiness. Holiness. And we don't have time to look at this in detail again, but just listen to Colossians 3, 4, and 5. Maybe write this down for later. Paul says, Colossians again, 3, 4, and 5. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Imagine that. Christ comes in great glory. Who's with him? We are, right? And we are revealed with him in? Who feels glorious this morning after a couple days camping? Okay, I see a couple. Young people are saying that feel glorious. Uh, Anybody over probably 35 is not feeling very glorious today. But we will have the glory of Christ coming with him from heaven in glory. Therefore, Paul says, after this idea of glorious return with Christ, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And then he lists more sins to put off in Colossians 3. And then he says, Colossians 3.12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And he continues to list many more virtues to practice. So the the truth of heaven going to be with Christ makes us, first of all, set aside sin, but also put on holiness. That is our our great desire, to be holy as Christ is holy. We're not just waiting for Christ to make us holy when he comes back. We want to be as close to Christ as possible, maybe so that the jump won't be so much for us. Second Corinthians 5, back there again. Verses 9 and 10, Paul says, Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So even for Christians, there is a judgment to come. We'll talk about that more tonight. But there's a judgment to come. And if you spend your life as a Christian doing worthless things, even wicked things, you'll be taken, uh, into, those will be uh, judged to your account, and you'll be uh, you'll be judged on the basis of that. So keep that in mind. As you are in this life, you won't go to hell because as a Christian you can't lose your salvation. But you can certainly lose rewards in heaven by not following Christ in holiness. So I've listed, I'm not sure how many, six, seven, eight maybe, responses. I know that's a lot. I don't expect you to do all of them. I don't do all of them as well as I should. But maybe pick a couple to focus on. So if you don't, again, know Christ, if you don't believe in Christ, your response is today to respond in faith. That's the only response you need today. Respond in faith to Christ. Talk to me, talk to Brett, somebody else here today. How can I come to know Christ and believe in him and be saved and go to heaven when I die? If you are 
perhaps too attached to the world. You love your stuff too much. You need to respond with anticipation. Look forward to heaven more. If you are grieved and troubled by certain circumstances in your life, let heaven, this doctrine of heaven, comfort you. Some of you may be hopeless. You see the state of the country or your family or something else in your life, and you just think, I've got nothing but despair here. Well, we have hope because we have a better city. We have a better country that God has given us in Christ. Maybe you are tired, you're discouraged, you want to give up, you want to sit down in your race. Well, let the truth of heaven give you encouragement and endurance. Maybe you're being lazy in your Christian walk. You know you should be doing things for Christ's sake, but you don't really feel like it. Maybe maybe later, when I, when I get older, or maybe when I retire, I can really devote my time to Christ. If that's your sin right now, let the doctrine of heaven drive you to diligence, to, to diligent work for Christ's sake, wherever you are in your life. You need to find time to serve Christ in his kingdom. And then finally, maybe you are worldly, you're, you're sinful, you're giving into temptation. Even now, you may have some things that are, are nagging you. They are pricking your conscience. Let the doctrine of heaven drive you to holiness. Remember what, what the word of God says. If you are looking towards heaven, look to your own soul as well and purify yourself by God's grace, by his word, by his spirit, and resist temptation, live holy lives that you reflect more that's going on in heaven for Christ's sake. Well, that, I think that's good enough for now. That should give us enough to do for the next 12 months to the next church camp, I think. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, we love this doctrine of heaven. What a glorious thing it is that when we think about what happens the moment after we die, we as Christians can confidently say we go to be with Christ. Our sins are finally gone. We can no longer even want to sin. We will then be made perfect in Christ and we can, in the presence of of you, in the presence of Christ, wait for the redemption of our bodies, enjoy the glory of heaven, anticipate the resurrection, the uniting of our bodies with our souls forever and then enjoy the pleasures forevermore with you. For those who don't know Christ today, we pray that this would be a day of salvation for them, that they would know for a fact that they belong to Christ because they have trusted in him. May you pray the consciences of those who need to follow and believe in Christ. For those of us who have been perhaps lazy, who have been uh, wicked, giving into temptation, who have been discouraged, who have been hopeless, In all these ways, may you take the doctrine of heaven, make it more precious to all of us, that we can look ahead to your coming and say with the Apostle John, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray this for his sake. Amen.